Welcome back to the Hemingway List Podcast, Book 7, Chapter 2. Christian is off to London. Anyone else kind of wish the story would go with him? Just a change of scenery, a change of character. I know Christian's a little bit uh, strange, so I feel like it'll be interesting to observe his behavior. Um, You know, like I don't want to just hang around and watch someone else get married or have a baby. You know. So, that's what I want to happen. Swims to the mum fishy says, though, not really. Christian's hypochondria is extremely annoying, and I find him a westral of no particular interest. Well, there you go. Tecrific also says, not really, but I know it's beginning to feel a little claustrophobic in the Buddenbrook bubble. Any outside perspective would be welcome, staying with the sinking ship of a family is depressing. Christian holds no real interest for me. He seems sociopathic and manipulative, and it's sad when characters lack any real redeeming qualities, because that's rarely the case in real life. Even in our bitterest bitterest enemies, we can see that there's a good person with a bad side. Thomas Mann hasn't really shown me the good sides of Christian, and therefore it's hard for me to see him as a real person. He's more like a caricature, a simile, or stand-in for the wasteful type so often depicted in decadent stories. There are similar such characters in literature that offer a more complete portrait rather than the pencil sketch we get with Christian, where the complete picture doesn't seem to exist, even if we could travel with him to London. We would be none the wiser as to his motivations and desires. Maybe it's just wishful thinking on my part then. If it had been Sebastian Flight from Bride's Head revisited, I would gladly follow him to London because he's a compelling character and his suffering is made real by war. Or take any of P.J. Wodehouse's members of the Drones Club and practically all of them have more life and reality to them than Christian Buddenbrook. Zock disagrees saying, I would say that about Grunlich, but not about Christian. I think Christian is quite realistic. A lot of people struggle with life after coming of age, and that is what I see him as, struggling to find his place and the point of everything, fearful of illness and death. That's not really rare at all. I really like to see that represented, and I think I would not fare better in his set of circumstances. I don't know. I kind of see him as one of the, weirdly, one of the more complex characters. You know, I feel like there's a lot to him, but I I also feel like it's all under the surface, but we haven't really seen it. Like, I feel that that's why I'm compelled to see what makes him tick. He's um, kind of eccentric, isn't he? Uh, and something like a hypochondriac, yeah. But also, I, I just remember them when they described his intensity earlier on in the book. It's like, I kind of can see what he is. Like, I feel like I know people like that, um, but can't quite put my finger on it. Zoc also says, I'm with you, Ander. I adore Christian. The chapters with him are my favorites. Well, there you go. Look, I'm not saying I adore him or he's my favorite character or anything. I just feel like he's interesting and he's going off to, to London and we haven't seen London really in this book. So, I want a change of scenery and a change of main character. But I don't think we're going to get it. I don't think that's what's going to happen. Alright, 
Let's read chapter 3. James Mullendorf, the oldest of the merchant senators, died in a grotesque and horrible way. The instinct of self-preservation became very weak in this diabetic old man, and in the last years of his life he fell a victim to a passion for cakes and pastries. Dr. Grabau, as the Mullendorf family physician, had protested energetically, and the distressed relatives employed gentle constraint to keep the head of the family from committing suicide with sweet bake stuffs. But the old senator, mental wreck as he was, rented a room somewhere in some convenient street like Little Groping Alley or Angel's Wick or behind the wall, a little hole of a room where he would secretly betake himself to consume sweets. And there they found his lifeless body, the mouth still full of half-masticated cake, the crumbs upon his coat, and upon the wretched table a mortal stroke had supervened and put a stop to slow dissolution. The horrid details of the death were kept as much as possible from the family, but they flew about the town and were discussed at length on the bourse, in the club, and at the Harmony, in all the business offices, in the assembly of Burgesses, likewise at all the balls, dinners, evening parties, for the death occurred in February of the year 62, and the season was in full swing. Even the Frau Consul's friends talked about it on the Jerusalem evenings in the pauses of Leah Gerhard's reading aloud. The little Sunday school children discussed it in awesome whispers as they crossed the Buttonbrook entry. And her stort in Belfounders Street went into ample detail over it with his wife who moved in the highest circles, but interest could not long remain concentrated upon the past, and even with the first rumour of the old man's death, the great question had at once sprung up who was to succeed him? What suspense, what subterranean activity? A stranger intent on the sites of the medieval town would have noticed nothing, but beneath the surface there was unimaginable bustle and commotion as one firm and unassailable honest conviction after another was exploded. And slowly, slowly, the while divergent views approached each other, Passions are stirred, ambition and vanity wrestle together in silence, dead and buried hopes spring once more to life, and again are blasted. Old Kurz, the merchant in Baker's Alley, who gets three or four votes at every election, will sit quaking at home on the fatal day and listen to the shouting, but he will not be elected this time either. He will continue to take his walks abroad, displaying outwardly his usual mingling of civic pride and self-satisfaction, but he will bear down with him into the grave the secret chagrin of never having been elected senator. James Mollendorf's death was discussed at the Buddenbrook Thursday dinner table, and Frau Permanida, after the proper expressions of sympathy, began to let her tongue play upon her upper lip and look across artfully at her brother. The Buddenbrook ladies marked the look. They exchanged piercing glances, and with one accord shut their eyes, and their lips tightly together, the consul had, for a second, responded to the sly smile his sister gave him, and then given the talk another turn. He knew that the thought which Tony hugged to her breast in secret was being spoken in the street. Names were suggested and rejected, others came up and were sifted out, Henning Kurz in Baker's Alley was too old, they needed new blood. Consul Hunius, the lumber dealer whose millions would have waited 
the scale heavily in his favour, was constitutionally ineligible as his brother already sat in the Senate. Consul Edward Kistenmarker, the wine dealer, and Consul Herman Hagenstrom were names that kept their place on the list, but from the very first was heard the name of Thomas Buddenbrook, and as election day approached it grew constantly plainer that he and Herman Hagenstrom were the favoured candidates. Herman Hagenstrom had his admirers and hangers-on, there was no doubt of that. His zeal in public affairs, the spectacular rise of the firm of Strunk and Hagenstrom, the showy house the consul kept to the luxurious life he led, the pâté de foie gras he ate for breakfast, all these could not fail to make an impression. This large, rather overstout man with the short, full reddish beard and the snub nose coming down flat on his upper lip, this man whose grandfather nobody knew, not even himself, and whose father had made himself socially impossible by a rich but doubtful marriage, this man had become a brother-in-law of the Hunerius and the Mollendorfs, had ranged his name alongside those of the five or six reigning families in the town, and was undeniably a remarkable and respectable figure, the novel and therewith at the attractive element in his personality, that which singled him out for a leading position in the eyes of many was its liberal and tolerant strain. His light, large way of making money and spending it again differed fundamentally from the patient, persistent toil and the inherited principles of his fellow merchants. This man stood on his own feet, free from the fetters of tradition and ancestral piety, and all the old ways were foreign to him. His house was not one of the ancient patrician mansions, built with senseless waste of space in tall white galleries mounting above the stone-paved ground floor. His home on Sand Street, the southern extension of Broad Street, was a modern dwelling, not conforming to any set style of architecture, with a simple painted facade, but furnished inside with every luxury and planned with the cleverest economy of space. Recently, on the occasion of one of his large evening parties, he had invited a prima donna from the government theatre to sing after dinner to his guests, among them his witty, art-loving brother, and had paid her an enormous fee for her services. Herman Hagenstrom was not the man to vote in the assembly for the application of large sums of money to preserve and restore the town's medieval monuments. But it was a fact that he was the first, absolutely the first man in town to light his house and his offices with gas. Yes, if Consul Hagenstrom could be said to represent any tradition whatever, it was the free, progressive, tolerant, unprejudiced habit of thought which he had inherited from his father, old Hinrich, and on this was based all the admiration people undoubtedly felt for him. Thomas Buddenbrook's prestige was of a different kind. People honoured in him not only his own personality, but the personalities of his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather as well. Quite apart from his own business and public achievement, he was the representative of a hundred years of honourable tradition, and the easy, charming way indeed with which he carried the family standard made no small part of his success. What distinguished him even among his professional fellow citizens was an unusual degree of formal culture, which, wherever he went, aroused both wonder and respect in equal degrees. 
On Thursdays at the Buddenbrooks, the coming election received only brief and passing comment in the presence of the consul. Whenever it was mentioned, the old Frau Consul discreetly averted her eyes, but Frau Permanita now and then would could not refrain from displaying her astonishing knowledge of the Constitution. She had gone very thoroughly into the, the decrees touching the election of a member of the Senate, precisely as once she thoroughly informed herself on the laws governing divorce. She talked about voting chambers, ballots and electors. She weighed all the possible eventualities she could recite verbatim and glibly the oath taken by the voters. She spoke of the free and frank discussion which the Constitution ordains must be held over each name upon the list of candidates and vivaciously wished she might be present when Herman Hagenstrom's character was being pulled to pieces. A moment later she learned over and leaned over and began to count the prune pits in her brother's dessert plate, Tinker Taylor Soldier Sailor, finishing triumphantly with Senator, when she came to the last pit. But after dinner, she could not hold in any longer. She took her brother's arm and drew him in to the bow window. Oh, Tom, Tom, suppose you are really elected. If our coat of arms is put up in the Senate chamber... At the town hall, I shall just die of joy. I, sh I know I shall, I shall fall dead at the news. You'll see. Now, Tony dear, have a little self-control, a little dignity. I beg of you. You are not usually lacking in dignity. Am I going around like Henning Kurz? We amount to something, even without the senator. And I hope you won't die, whichever way it turns out. And the agitations, the consultations, the struggles of opinion took their course. Consul Peter Dolman, the rake with a business now entirely ruined, which existed only in name, and the 27-year-old daughter whose inheritance was eating up, played his part by attending two dinners, one given by Thomas Buddenbrook and the other by Herman Hagenstrom, and both times addressing his host in his loud, resounding voice as Senator, but Sigismund Gosh, old Gosh the Broker, went about like a raging lion and engaged to throttle anybody out of hand who wasn't minded to vote for Consul Buddenbrook. Consul Buddenbrook, gentlemen, ah, there, uh, there's a man for you. I stood at his father's side in 48, when, with a word, he tamed the unleashed fury of the mob. His father and his father's father before him would have been senator, were there any justice on this earth. But at bottom it was not so much Consul Buddenbrook himself, whose personality fired Gosh's soul to its innermost depths, it was rather the young Frau Consul Gerda Arnoldson, not that the broker had ever exchanged a word with her, he did not belong to her circle of wealthy merchant families, nor sit at their tables, nor pay visits to them, but as we have seen, Gerda Buddenbrook had but to arrive in the town to be singled out by the roving fancy of the sinister broker, ever on the lookout for the unusual. With unerring instinct he divined that his this figure was calculated to add content to his unsatisfied existence, and he made himself the slave of one who had scarcely ever heard his name. Since then he encompassed in his reveries this nervous, exceedingly reserved lady to whom he had not even been presented. He lifted his jesuit hat to her on the street, to her great surprise, and treated her to a pantomime of cringing treachery. Gloating over her, the while in his thoughts as a tiger might over his trainer. 
This dull existence would afford him no chance of committing atrocities for this woman's sake. Ah, if it only would. With what devilish indifference would he answer for them? Its stupid conventions prevented him from raising her, by deeds of blood and horror, to an imperial throne, and thus nothing was left but for him to go to the town hall and cast his vote in favour of her furiously respected husband, and perhaps one day to dedicate to her his forthcoming transition of Lope de Vega. Alright, there we go, another chapter for you. Looks like uh, old Tom might be getting into politics. Fun, fun times ahead. Alright, thanks for listening, see you tomorrow.